Well, good morning, church family. Um, we're sorry that we can't be with you this morning, uh, although I'm sure you are happy that we are where we are instead of in the building with you, given the fact that we all have COVID. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at the last part of 1 Peter chapter 3. And remember, Peter's writing a letter, and letters are not academic essays with one main point and three subpoints and examples and so forth. They communicate the ideas of a person as they're coming to their mind, and they circle back to reinforce the same ideas again and again sometimes, and they pull together examples, and rather than the traditional main point with subpoint kind of hierarchy, they often spiral around back to the same things. It sometimes makes a teaching letter a little bit harder to follow than a traditional essay. But up to this point, most of the things we've looked at in First Peter, when we start to break them down, the points are pretty clear and we're able to apply them easy, easily to our lives. The text that we're going to look at today, the first time you re read through it, it may even seem a little weird, a little strange, a little outlandish, some of the things that Peter says. But when we break them down and talk about what they mean, and then we ask ourselves, why is Peter saying this to us? Not just what is he saying and do we understand the basic meaning, but why is he saying this? What is he trying to get across to us? The verses will kind of fall into place. So let's start and look at those verses. Now, the last verse that we read last Sunday was verse 18, and it says, Because Christ also suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter was talking about the reasons why that we should endure hardship, the reasons why we should endure persecution faithfully, not return evil for evil, insult for insult, but return blessing for cursing. And he, throughout the, the, the book, he's given us many reasons for this. But in verse 18, he says another reason. He says, because Christ also suffered for sins once. So there's that idea that Christ set a model for us in giving his life for the unrighteous. We also are to do the same, not just to die for the unrighteous, but to give our lives in service to them by ministering to them and presenting the gospel to them. And sometimes by enduring their unfairness. So he says, Christ died for sin, suffered for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring you to God, being put to death in this, the flesh, Jesus dying, but made alive in the spirit. So he's reminding the believers in Asia Minor, and he's reminding us as well, that we have benefited by Christ's forbearance, by his forgiveness, by his willing to endure injustice on behalf of the unjust, suffering for those who do not deserve it, but yet were the objects of God's mercy. If we have benefited from Christ's great work of forgiveness and forbearance, how much more should we turn around and respond to injustice with love? Because we have been the beneficiaries of such great kindness. So Peter's saying that that's one of the reasons why we respond to injustice with love, why we respond to persecution with blessing, because Christ has done so much for us with the purpose of our salvation, we should do the same for others with an eye towards uh, the possibility that more people will come to Christ because of it. Starting in verse 19, 
Peter takes off on what might feel like a tangent or even a hard-to-follow bit, building on that idea of Christ being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Verse 19 marks the first of these a little bit hard to understand. The basic words are not hard to understand, but what he's saying, what he's talking about, what event he's referring to, and what the purpose is, is a little bit hard to understand. So in verse 19, he says, in whom he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. So there are some unknowns here. First of all, who's the he? He went and preached. It's referring to Jesus. So it's just been referring to Jesus's death and resurrection. And it says he, Jesus, also went and preached to the spirits in prison. The in whom? Uh, who is that referring to? It's in a person. So it doesn't mean he went directly, but by means of another person. So almost like sending a message through that person. Who's the in whom? Well, in verse, uh, verse 18, it says, he, Jesus, was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in whom he also went and preached. So it means in the spirit. So that means Jesus, whatever event Peter's talking about here, it doesn't mean Jesus physically in his body walked to a particular place and preached. It means he preached by means of the Spirit. Now that opens a lot of doors for possible meanings here. So basically any time the Holy Spirit worked to proclaim the gospel, the salvation message to someone in history, that's Christ working by means of his Spirit. So it had to have been something that happened before Peter's time because it was a past event, but it didn't necessarily have to be something that happened when Jesus was alive in his body walking on earth. So at this point in verse 19, we don't know who the spirits in prison are. And there's very little in the scripture at this point in verse 19 to give us a clue. So we're going to need to read a little bit more, but it's saying that Jesus went not in his body, but by the power of his spirit and proclaimed the gospel to these spirits in prison. So let's look at verse 20 and see who he's talking about. Verse 20 identifies these spirits in prison for us. It says they who, and the who refers to the spirits of prison, who before were disobedient when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ship was being built. So it's not referring to people in Jesus, the time that Jesus walked on earth. It's not referring to people in Peter's time, and it's certainly not referring to future people. It's looking all the way back to the time of Noah, uh, shortly before the flood. He says, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. So this is during the time that the ark was being built. So now we can see these spirits in prison. Now they're spirits. Now they're being held in prison. But in the time of Noah, they weren't spirits. They were living human beings, those who disobeyed, those who rejected God's commands, those who were full of evil all of the time, as the scripture says. So this is referring to Jesus, not in his body, but by the power of spirit, the spirit, preaching to a group of human beings who lived a long time ago during the time of Noah. Now these people, because they perished in the flood, now they're spirits and they're being kept in prison. And it says that during the time of Noah, Jesus preached to them through the power of the spirit. What does the Bible say about the people who were living in the time of Noah? It says in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, 
The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the generation that Peter is talking about, the generation that disobeyed, that they rejected God and instead pursued, as uh, Moses said, pursued uh, only evil all of the time. And during that time that God spoke to uh, Noah and told him to build the ark, he, he worked on the ark, and the scripture says that that time of the construction of the ark lasted until Noah was 600 years old. So there was a hundred years there while Noah and his family were in the process of the construction of the ark. And Genesis doesn't tell us much about what went on during that time besides the construction of the ark. But if we turn to Peter's second letter, chapter 2, it says that, when he, God, brought the flood on its ungodly people, he protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. So it says that Noah was not only uh, the engineer who built the ark, he was a preacher of righteousness. So he was declaring the truth of God's message. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So the simple act of Noah building the ark because he trusted that God's judgment was true. And what was God's judgment? The world had turned to evil. The world deserved God's wrath and the world was about to receive it. But by faith, he trusted God and built the ark. So the simple fact of his actions claimed the truth of God's righteousness and of God's salvation and his mercy to that generation. But as Peter said in, in chapter Second uh, Peter 2, Noah was also a preacher. He, he would have preached to these people and declared to them their sinfulness, their need of God's forgiveness, their need of God's mercy. This had gone on for a hundred years while Noah proclaimed to this group of people their disobedience and their need of God the Savior. So Peter is saying that through the Spirit, Christ inspired Noah to preach to these disobedient human beings and declare the righteousness of God and their sinfulness and their need of a Savior. And despite that, they rejected and only Noah and seven others were saved. So this is really interesting. It gives us a new insight into the things that were happening in Noah's time, it wasn't just Noah building an ark to save his family. Through Noah, Christ, God the Son, was declaring to this generation the gospel, their need of a savior. He was offering them mercy again and again and again, and yet they rejected it. So it's fascinating, it's interesting, and it, like I said, it provides a new window, a new insight into these texts. But why on earth is Peter talking about it? What is his point? What is he trying to communicate to us by giving us this peek behind the curtain into what was going on in Noah's time? Well, in verse 21, Peter says, In it, meaning the ship, the ark, 
in the ark, few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So the ark lifted those eight souls up above the destructive, killing waters of the flood. It says that they were saved through water. Now, we need to be very careful here and distinguish uh, English and Greek. It says that they were saved through water. This does not mean that the water saved them. Think about this. The water is, in fact, what killed all the many, many people of that world. No water, no one would have died at all. The water is not what saved him. They were saved through water, not by water. They were saved through water. Think of it like escaping through a tunnel. They're passing through the water in their process of being saved. What saved them? God saved them. Why did he save them? Because of their faith. The water did not save them. They were saved by God despite the water. This is parallel in many ways to uh, what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And Paul was talking about Christians, basically Christians who lived a poor life, that they didn't really live a life of service to God. Um, maybe they, they did things for God, but really they did them just for just for pride or to be puffed up or for selfish reasons so they might have done some things but their work wasn't quality it didn't last and it wasn't really of honor honoring to god he says you know that that person would still be saved he said their work will be like nothing as if it were burned up by fire but that person will still be saved as one escaping through the fire in verse 14 he says if what has been built survives that means the allegedly good works by this person who is a believer but is really not doing these works to serve god says the builder so if what is oh, if what has been built survives in verse 14 it's referring to someone who actually does quality work not like skilled work but genuine work work that is genuinely done to please the lord and not to please yourself it says that person will receive a award. If it is burned up, this is referring to the selfish kind of work, the work for applause and, and to please men rather than to please God. The builder will suffer loss. So the person who lived this kind of life will suffer loss, but, sorry, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping, there is a, that word again, through the flames. So you imagine someone in a burning building jumping through the flames to safety. So the flames are not saving this person. They're not being saved by the flames. They're passing through the destructive flames on the way to being saved. The same thing is true when we're talking about Noah's flood. The waters didn't save Noah and his family. The waters were the killing destructive thing. They were saved despite the flood because of God's mercy to them. This is important when we get to verse 22. It said verse 22, it's actually verse 21. It's important to know that the water didn't save Noah, that they were saved by God through the water. Because in verse 21, Peter says, this, meaning the flood and Noah's family being saved, this is a symbol of baptism, which now saves you. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's critical that we understand that when Peter is talking about the waters of the flood, that they don't save a person. And that's what Peter is saying. The water didn't save him. They were saved through 
the water, not because of the water or by the water, because Peter's saying that this is a symbol of baptism. And Peter goes out of his way here to make sure that we understand what baptism he's talking about so that we're not confused into thinking that water baptism saves a person. <clears throat> it's important to remember the apostles, they were not just teachers, they were prophets as well. God spoke to them and revealed to them things that were going to come, including heresies and false teachers that would come to lead people astray. We see that when we read John's letter, he warns of the Gnostics. He says, anyone who denies that Jesus Christ really came in the flesh, that he was a real human being, that person is the Antichrist. Do not listen to them. Peter here is giving us some important information about baptism, and he wants to make sure that we're not led astray by those who would come and say, you must be water baptized in order to be saved, that water baptize, baptism is kind of the culminating act on the part of a human in the salvation process, rather than what the Bible teaches, that it is an outward demonstration of a salvation that has already occurred. We are baptized to show the world what has happened already to us. We have already been redeemed, and we do it to declare to the world that this process has happened. And Peter makes this clear. He says, this is a symbol of, a, of baptism which now saves you, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. In other words, it's not the immersion in the water. It's not washing with water that saves you. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's the person having repented of their sins and put their faith in Christ, and it's the work of Christ through his death on the cross that pays for our redemption, and a person receives it when they come by faith to repentance and to trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior and King. That is when a person is saved. But he says here, baptism, which now saves you, it's important to realize, to recognize that the scriptures talk about more than one kind of baptism. It talks about this water baptism that is symbolic of something that has already taken place inside you. When John the Baptist first appeared and began to teach, he said that he baptized in water, but after him would come one who would baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When a person first comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that is the moment of their genuine baptism. The Holy Spirit regenerates that person's spirit, gives them new life. The old self, the sinful self that was apart from God, is functionally recognized as dead. That's what Paul wrote. He said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live by faith, I, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the actual baptism, the one that no one sees except for God, comes at the point of genuine faith. And in that baptism, something dies. The old self that did not recognize God. And something is saved. This new self, this new creation. When a person is water baptized, that is an outward physical declaration of the thing that has already happened. So Peter says that this, uh, these events that took place in the time of Noah, when the gospel was proclaimed, some rejected, some received, and those who received the truth, they were saved out of 
the water. He said that is a picture of not the water baptism, despite the fact that there's water involved in both of them. He said it's a picture of the actual baptism of faith, the one that saves you. So when the gospel goes forth in the world today, some hear it and reject. Some believe and their old self dies, just like those people died in the flood. And the new self is born and is saved out of disaster out of judgment. That's what Peter is saying here. But again, we're left with that question, why? I mean, it's always good to know new things about God. It's always good to know new things about the Bible. But what is Peter's point in telling us this, in portraying for us this thing that happened, the gospel being presented even in Noah's time, some people rejecting and being destroyed, some people receiving and being saved, and that the same thing happened to us when we first believed? What is Peter's point? Why is he telling this? And how on earth does it relate to his idea that we're to patiently endure suffering and persecution, respond to cursing with blessing, respond to evil with love? How does it relate to any of that? Well, let's look at the last verse in this section. In verse 22, Peter writes, who is at the right hand of God? That who is Jesus Christ. You remember just a couple of, uh, or just one verse earlier, he says, uh, we're saved through the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. This is the key verse for understanding everything that has gone before. He's saying everything has been made subject to Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ to God the Father. So it's saying angels have been made subject to him. Authorities, meaning earthly authorities, powers, everything in the universe has been made subject to Jesus Christ. And who is about to persecute these Christians? It's the authorities and the powers of the Roman Empire. And Peter is telling them, before you even go into this persecution, know that Christ is already ruling and reigning over those authorities. Have you ever looked at your problems and thought, God, if only you would deal with that problem, then I would be okay. You know, those people at work or that situation at work, if only you would resolve that, then I'd be fine. Or Lord, if you would just help me deal with this problem with my children, that's all I ask. Then I'd be okay. Or maybe if you'd help me find a spouse that could love me, that I could love, then I'd be fine. God. Or maybe if you help me with this health problem, if only I wouldn't be in pain anymore, then things would be okay. Or maybe if you would only help me resolve this sit this unresolved situation with my family, or help me with this financial issue, then I'd be fine. But Peter's telling these believers in Asia Minor, the, these ones who are about to go through a terrible persecution uh, at the hands of the government, at the hands of their neighbors, that they haven't even experienced it yet, but they're going to. He's telling them, you don't need to have this problem fixed as much as you think that you do, because Christ has already conquered. Not just the powers and authorities, but way back before the, the, the fall of man, when the angels disobeyed, he conquered then and established his authority. In the time of Noah, when people d disobeyed, he conquered, he rescued his own, and he established 
his authority and his preeminence there as well. So in your life, whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is you're about to go through, you may need that problem fixed much less than you think you do. It's not that it's not a good thing to want for problems to be fixed. And God tells us to pray about those things, to work to make the world better. Those are all good things, but we don't have to see those problems fixed. We don't have to see those things resolved. First of all, we don't have to see them fixed to be okay ourselves. We don't have to have them fixed to know that God is at work in our lives. And we don't have to have them fixed to know that God is triumphant and he is conquered before you ever experience them, every trial and every difficulty. So it's natural as human beings to want to get out from under suffering. And the Bible tells us that if we're able to, that we should, but we don't have to get out from under those things. We don't have to see solutions to those things, whether it's things that people have done to us or just the natural consequences of living in broken bodies in a broken world. We don't have to get out from under those things in order to start living a life of victory, a life of triumph, a life of joy in the midst of those difficulties. Remember David, when he had all of those trials, all of those difficulties, one of the things he wrote was that very famous psalm that we tend to unfortunately read just at funerals. We don't seem to read it any other time. Psalm 23. In that psalm, he even though I walk through the darkest valley, that's the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So it wasn't getting out of the shadow, getting out of the valley that comforted David. It was God's presence, his rod and his staff and his presence that comforted him. And my favorite verse here is verse five. He says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. What do you want to eat? You want to eat when you're relaxed and everything's okay and all the troubles of the day have been resolved and you can just kind of sit down and, and enjoy your food. David here says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You haven't made my enemies go away. I don't see them defeated. I don't see how they're going to be defeated. And yet in the midst of them, you've prepared this banquet for me. You've prepared this enjoyment, this pleasure, this respite in the middle of that difficulty. So brothers and sisters, as you're going out into this week, let me suggest two things for you. One, pray about your difficulties. Pray about those injustices, the unfair things at work, the bad things people are doing to you, the things that just don't work in you. Pray about them. Ask God to deliver you from them. And when you see an opportunity to make those things better, jump at the chance. And again, unless you are walking across the tops of other people's heads in order to get your relief, Go for it. Do it. Make your life better if you can. But do not wait and think that those things have to be resolved in some satisfactory way that you can see before you experience joy, before you experience peace, before you look for God's hand at work. We know that whatever we're facing today, whatever we're facing tomorrow or any time in the future, wherever we go, we know that God has gone there ahead of us and he has triumphed in victory 
over our enemies. So when we wake up in the morning, let's look at our day less like a series of playing the lottery, gambling to see how things are going to turn out. Are things going to be okay? Are they not going to be okay? Is this going to work out for me or is it going to turn out badly? Rather, knowing that all things work together for the glory of God and for the good and the blessing of those who love him, let's look at every one of those forks in the road that may go one way, may go another, not as seeing them as the good choice and the bad choice, but delighting in observing which way God has chosen to bless us and those around us that day. By the high road, by the low road, by the bright path, by the dark path, by the pleasing and comforting, by the difficulty, but knowing that all of those things are the paths that God has chosen for us, and that no matter how many enemies there are, no matter what darkness there is, that God has prepared a place for us in their presence.